All right, if you're a, a guest with us today, we're so honored that you'd be here with us. Uh, you are joining what we're doing here on Sunday mornings right now, something called Summer Bible Jam. And it's really something we've done the last few years, and it's got a real simple intention to it. It's intended to help us enjoy and fall in love more and more with God's Bible. Right, God wrote something down. That he intended it to be at this, like the kids learn, this treasure that we look into and we receive from it. Stuff that just affects our lives. But we don't just want to be aware that there is a Bible. And we don't just want to draw some ideas from it in little scattered places of our lives. This is God's word and he wants it to have a deep impact on just the daily spaces of our lives. So... There's a way that you go about enjoying God's Word. You have to learn something about it a little bit to, to really enjoy it. Uh, it. It reminds me, a number of years ago, uh, a couple of our kids got more and more involved in classical music. And so my wife and I began to uh, attend and connect with symphonies. Now, you know, I grew up uh, not listening to symphonies, you know, quite honestly. I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and Boston and the Rolling Stones. Uh, so symphonies were really just outside of my category of expertise. And so for years, I'd go to these symphonies and I'd listen and it just sounded like, you know, I loved it, but it just sounded like a pile of music, you know, a bunch of foreign songs. I hadn't heard them before. Every once in a while you'd hear something. It's like, oh, I think I heard that in a commercial once. And you just, every once in a while you'd connect to something. And then I realized... The composers who had put these symphonies together, they, they were telling stories with what they were composing. So my wife and I went to a, a symphony after I'd learned this, got this revelation, and I actually researched the symphony that we were going to, pulled up the composer's background, looked at what he was writing about, and what he was intending to communicate. So then we go to the symphony, right? So I'm armed now. I know what each piece is trying to accomplish. I understand why the first set of music only needed like 48 instruments, but then the second set of the symphony needed 110, because he was trying to tell a story and he was using these particular instruments it was musical accents on a story and I totally enjoyed symphonies from then on if I'm going to a symphony now I want to do a little background research and I really want to enjoy what I'm listening to well the Bible's kind of that way all right, we can come to the Bible and it just looks like, it's like a pile of words, you know, it's got all these stories in it and books all over the place and we're reading it and we're trying to get something out of it and we want to benefit from it, but we just kind of don't know what to do with it. Well, that's what Summer Bible Jam helps us do every year. It helps us sit down with the Bible and understand it a little bit better. So each week this summer so far, you've, you've heard a preaching from one of the Psalms, right? So there's Psalms in the Bible. And you've heard a preaching from the wisdom literature. So there's like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Well, this morning we're going to learn about the prophets. This little group of 16 books in the Bible that were written. Let me put my bookshelf up here. If you'll learn to look at your Bible this way, hopefully that's readable for you guys. Uh, You know, we tend to think of the Bible as a book. But, you know, the Bible is a little bit more like a library than it is just a book. Right? When you walk into a library, you've got the... You got the encyclopedia section that you go to that for a certain type of information. Then you've got magazine racks that you go to them for kind of some current kind of stuff that's going on. Then you got novels in another area. You got fiction. You got history. Right? So you know when you walk into a, a, a library that you just don't pick everything up and read it exactly the same way. Right? When you pick up the 
comic books and you read the comics, you're not reading it the same way you're reading an encyclopedia, are you? Because you know that. It's a different sort of a book. Well, when you come to the Bible, there are different types of books in the Bible. And God intentionally put different books in the Bible. So you'll see this middle shelf here. It's, it's the prophets. And, and rightly so, it gets its own shelf space because it's a massive section of the scriptures. About 21% of all Bible passages are contained on that bookshelf. In the prophets. And so we have books you know, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Hosea. Those guys are all contained in the prophets. But they're probably, I would venture to say, the least visited books in the Bible. Because we find them hard to read. We find them confusing. They seem to use language we don't quite get. They write in a different style. They're from a time period that we don't quite follow. As a matter of fact, maybe some of us don't even have any idea as to what time period these guys are from. Because right? the Bible can be a little tricky. We open it up in Genesis and we start moving all the way through it to Revelation. And we think we're just kind of moving through time as we write it read it but we're not we're moving through sections of books and then some of the books will go back in time and they'll overlap in time so when you come to this shelf called the prophets here's where the prophets occur in history somewhere around the middle 600s bc all the way to i think i put this in your outline there about 460 bc so about sixth century 760 bc all the way to 460 about a 300 year period of time where all these writings take place. So these guys aren't writing when Moses was hanging around, when Abraham was hanging around. They're writing much later. And their whole time of writing, if you follow the storyline in the Bible, you know there's this major event that takes place called the exile, where God's people who are supposed to live in this wonderful promised land, they get taken off into exile. Well, the prophets start writing just before that event happens, almost like a warning Hey guys, if you don't pay attention to what we're saying here, you're going to lose everything you got. And then sure enough, they lose it. They go off into exile. The prophets keep writing. And then God restores them and the prophets keep writing during that time period as well. So all the prophets are going to happen right in that time span of events. And I put a little memory hook in here for you. Some major memory milestones. It's very good to have a little bit of a working timeline in your head. So here's a real simplified, pretty close to accurate time frame here. If you'll start with Abraham at about the year 2000 BC. And every 500 years you'll install a major character, a major event. You'll kind of stay with the Bible storyline pretty well. So Abraham, 2000 BC. 500 years later about Moses comes along. Right, so these guys weren't neighbors. If you ever thought Moses and Abraham, I wonder if they got along, were they neighbors? Uh, no, they, they didn't hang around each other at all. They're 500 years apart. And then about another 500 years later, we get guys like King David and King Solomon around 1000 BC. And then not quite 500 years later, about 400 years later, we get this exile event taking place at roughly about 600 BC. So that's kind of where these things fit together. Right. All right, so you want to pick the Bible up, and I hope you want to do this, and you want to read from the prophets. Why, would be my first question, why do you want to read from the prophets? Well, a lot of people want to read from the prophets because they're, they're looking for sort of weird, prophetic content, right? They want to figure out, you know, I want to, I want to know, well, if Russia makes a move in the Middle East, what does that mean? So let me see if I can go back here into Jeremiah and Ezekiel and figure out... 
that future dimension of what's going to be happening here. Well, here's some interesting thoughts for you. I'm just going to move through this really quickly, but it'll be helpful for you to attempt to read and benefit. A couple of quotes from some scholarly guys here. The introduction to the Bible interpretation says this. Traditionally, one describes the content of prophecy under the terms either foretelling or foretelling. Right? Just proclaiming something or telling about things that are going to be happening in the future. However, very little of the Old Testament prophecy is predictive prophecy. Most of it involves foretelling. Right? It's just proclaiming something God's trying to say to his people. Messages for a prophet's own audience about their own day or the near future for them. The fact that most prophecies spoke about the present or immediate future rather than the distant future should encourage Bible students today. No one should avoid studying prophecy out of fear of its obscurity. That the prophets spoke about life in their own day makes it easier for us to understand their message for our day. Right, so that's our first obligation is we're going to the prophets to figure out what's going on right there with them that God's trying to speak about. Not some secret hidden code message that might be de- depicting what nation might move against what nation next in the year 2020. Right? Sometimes that's the only reason we go to the prophets. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, excellent book for you to go look at, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. They say less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. Less than 1% concerns events yet to come in our time. Right, so the idea that, you know, when you open up Isaiah, you're kind of like opening up Nostradamus. You kind of need to jettison that idea. That's not what God was doing. When he had the prophets write a message, they very much are writing into what's going on with them right there in that setting. And that's why they're showing up. Right? When the prophet shows up, whatever he's got to say, it's being driven by the context in which he shows up. So his day matters. And if you want to understand what's going on when they speak, you've got to go back in time a little bit and check that out. One more thought from Mr. Fee and Mr. Stewart. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to read any of the longer prophetic books? Why do you suppose this is? Well, primarily... We think because they were probably not intended to be read that way, right? You just don't sit down and read all the way through a prophet. That's not how they're written. For most part, these longer books are collections of spoken oracles, not always presented in their original chronological sequence, often without hints as to their historical setting. And most of the oracles were spoken in poetry. So oracles for a prophet are sort of like prophetic episodes, right? There's a moment where God inspires prophets to say something to people. And they'll begin that in a section and then they'll suddenly end it. And they'll just record that, put it into the book, and then when you're reading, another one starts. And then maybe a little bit later you read again and another one starts. And then Isaiah's, all of his oracles are collected together into the book of Isaiah. They're not all in chronological order. They're just episodes that just got put into the book. So you need a little bit of help navigating through these moments. And they're not all intended to be strung together in the sense that, well, this one followed that one, this one followed that one. So when you and I read the prophets, and again, I hope you will read the prophets, we need a little help going into them. So this is why we recommend resources to you. 
One highly recommended resource is that everybody should own a study Bible. Right? You should just have some help. A study Bible does a little bit of the homework for you. So you decide you want to read Isaiah this week. And you open up your study Bible. And the introduction to Isaiah tells you what time frame, what was going on with his people, who was Isaiah, what was he seeking to address, what kind of problems were they having, what was unique to their setting. Right? All that stuff is very helpful when you go to read the rest of Isaiah. Right? So get yourself a good study Bible if you don't have one. I think we've got some in the bookstore. If not, the ESV study Bible is probably the best one we've come across that we would recommend to folks. But there's, there's other good ones out there. All right, before I jump into the details here, you guys remember, Summer Bible Jam is designed to do something in particular with your Bible reading. It's designed to help you encounter God when you go to read the Bible, right? Because we're going we're gonna to learn a little bit from Jeremiah today. Most of us know that there's these Bible stories tucked away here. We've heard a lot of them. We've heard these characters. I'm probably not mentioning anybody's name that you don't know a little bit about. Isaiah, Jeremiah... But God didn't write his word so that you and I could just have a bookshelf of knowledge that sits somewhere over there. And we take this knowledge and we set it down on a bookshelf and we know it's over there. Now God, he desired to encounter our lives with his word. So what we're doing in Summer Bible Jam is just teaching you three basic things. We want to learn to see what's in the Bible. We want to learn to savor what's in the Bible. In other words, to taste it. For me, personally. And then third, we want to encounter God. The God who wrote this Bible. Who wants to be in my life. Who wants, personally, to be involved with me on a daily basis. And God's designed his word to do those things. So, when we go to see, right? There's something to be seen in the prophets, There's something to be seen in the Psalms. And Pastor Peter helped us with that. Evan helped us with something to be seen in wisdom literature. There's something to be seen in the the writing of the prophets. One particular thing. There's a number of things to be seen. But one particular flavoring, if you will. If If you take the prophets and you put them on your tongue. A dominant flavor you're going to taste is correction. And it's unavoidable. When the prophets speak, they sound like they're saying, not that, this. No, not that, this. You've you've been doing this, you need to start doing that. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do this. Why do you believe that when you should be believing this? Have you forgotten this? You should be remembering this. That's the tone. That's the flavor of the prophets. Which might be one of the reasons why a lot of us avoid the prophets. <laughs> right, maybe I don't want to have somebody stand in my life and say, Keith, what are you doing? Not that, but this. And if I hear that enough times, I just might want to move on to something that feels a little bit more enjoyable. Right, Evan made this point last week as he was working through some of the wisdom elements. If you venture into the literature section of the bookstore, maybe Barnes and Nobles, and you look at what's being published out there in the Christian universe, what's being published is being published primarily because that's what's being bought, right? So people have an appetite for things and they drive writers to write a certain way. So today, you know what people want? They don't want to be corrected. They want to be inspired, right? I'm living life. I've got my ship 
out on the ocean of life and I've got my sails pulled up and I want to build up speed. I want to go somewhere. I've got an agenda. I want to see the world, man. So, hey, you religious people out there, can you publish some stuff that's kind of like pump some wind into my sails? Help me get where I want to go. Lift me up. Inspire me. I'm kind of, kind of losing it along the way. You know, I just don't feel like remaining with this thing. It's getting hard. Just give me some inspiration. Motivate me, will you? Tell me it's going to be okay. Tell me God's for whatever it is that I'm for. That's what we want to hear. Jeremiah would not be a real popular guy to hear from today. Because Jeremiah might land on your boat and say, well, I hope you don't get any more wind because your boat's pointing in the wrong direction, dude. If you sail any harder here, you're going to sail off the end of the world. You might need to turn around and go in the other direction. Right? That's the tone of the prophets. And if you're going nowhere and you're in a hurry to get there, and I guess it kind of really doesn't matter. You don't need the prophets. But what if your life was supposed to go somewhere? What if the God who created you had something specific in mind? He designed you a certain way. He designed life a certain way. This theater of life that we live in, it's supposed to play out a certain way. Well, might we need that God to step in at moments and say, hey, 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 wait, you're off course, man. Don't don't keep doing that that way. You you need to go this way. That's not how I designed your life. Well, the prophets play a role in that. And this is not just a... Jeremiah having a bad day. The prophets speak on behalf of God. Right? In the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is inspired by God. Where'd this stuff come from? Jeremiah just made it up? No, it was inspired by God. God gave it to him to record, to pass on to generations. And then it says it's inspired by God and it's profitable, it's useful, it's helpful for teaching, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good task so apparently for me to live the life that God's called me to live I don't just need inspiration although I do need inspiration I I need teaching I need reproof I need I need correction can everybody just go with me on that I need correction y'all want to join with me Everybody say that on me. I need correction. All right. Now we're ready to read Jeremiah. All right. Turn to Jeremiah with me. And here's what I want us to do, right? I'm going to walk us through the seeing and the savoring and the encountering dimension today. The first thing we need to do is to see what's here. And there's a lot to see in the prophets. I've kind of highlighted two elements of seeing something. Uh, one is, these are dressed up in big theological terms. Don't be intimidated. Pedagogy through bio, biography, right? In other words, teaching through life example. Right? Part of what the prophets do for us is we get to read a little bit about their lives. And their lives contain a message. So it's not just that their words and their ideas are going to be given to us. When we come to Jeremiah, his life, his, his particular biography, where he's from, his experiences coming into being a prophet, who he is right now. That's all kind of part of his message. So we want to learn to see that, right? And then there's, there's messages that he delivers. Like he's a mailman. Cliff, he's like a mailman. That's like you, man. He comes, bl- brings a message from God that needs to be read right now. Hey, this is what God's got to say to you right now, right? So those are those oracle dimensions that we want to look at. But... <clears throat> 
Seeing is an intentional act. Right, so I need, you to, I, need you to, I need you to look for stuff with me. Right? Because if we are, what we're learning to do this summer is we're learning to meditate on the Bible. Not just read it. Not just say, hey, I read that chapter. Yeah, I read chapter 1 and 2 of Jeremiah. What did you see when you read it? Right? If, you're, if you're a foodie, uh, you, know, you, you taste for ingredients. Right? You, you take a bite and you analyze what was in this thing. What made it good? What are the flavors that... All right, I want you to taste these passages as we're reading through them. Because we're going to see something. And then we're going we're to let this passage not just be read by us. We're going to let it turn its eyes on our lives in a minute. And we're going to let it read us. So... Tasting brings my life near to this, right? Remember, I have my shelf over here. I can, I can put this Bible way over here, and I can read from Jeremiah today, and I can keep it way over there and go on about life. I can leave here today and go do life. But what God wants me to do is he, he wants for me to get near it to where the light of this Bible begins to shine itself on me. And I begin to, to see me as I see these passages, Right, so that's what we're going to hopefully do. But let's see some stuff first. Let's just see what's here. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. All right, this is Jeremiah's call. This is how a prophet becomes a prophet. God shows up and informs this man, I have a specific purpose for your life. And then in verse 9, we hear a little bit about what that specific purpose is. He says, Then the Lord put out his hand, he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to bring down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. All right, stop here just for a moment. Let's see something, right? Let's see something interesting here. Here's a guy named Jeremiah, regular dude. He becomes famous, but at this point, he's just a young man. He's probably an adolescent. There's not much great about him. He's got no resume. He's just kind of like us. And God shows up in his life, right? So I see something here. The God of the universe is a personal God. The God of the universe has particular things in store for the people that he's created. Notice, not everybody's going to get called to do what Jeremiah is called to do, but Jeremiah is going to get called to do what Jeremiah is going to do with his life. And where does he get this call? He gets it from God. Jeremiah is not initiating it. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to initiate things, but in this sense, Jeremiah is just doing life. And God shows up and begins to make real to him this sense of purpose and calling that's in his life. Now, notice a couple of things here. Don't, don't overlook. Don't run too far past this. Here's how God announces this. Before I formed you in the womb. That's an interesting, I'm not going to unpack this. But if you're trying to figure out how to treat unborn children. 
We live in a culture that's trying to figure out how to treat unborn children. If I just let this Bible educate, I want to see some things, right, when I read the Bible. Uh, who is forming children in the womb? Come on. Where am I getting that idea from? Some right to life protest? No. I'm getting it from here in the Bible. I'm getting it from behind the scenes where God says, Jeremiah, before anybody knew anything about you, before you drew breath, had brown hair, were five, eight foot eight, whatever, I was forming you in the womb. That's a sobering reality. Before anybody puts their hands on or decides they have some kind of rights over that child being formed in the womb. I need to let the Bible inform me. You are touching God's handiwork. God is at work. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now this is interesting. This man's going to receive a call in his life that originates before he's drawn breath. Before day one, before he is unimpressive or impressive, before he's achieved something, before he's got a resume. Right? Do you see something about God right here? Do you see something about how God operates in human beings' lives? Listen, see something here. Because in a moment when you pull your life next to this verse, it might be very, very helpful for you to realize. Are these things true in your life? Does God operate in your life anyway like he operated in Jeremiah's life? Right, you and I live in a good-bad reality. We live in a world that, that tends to think about relating to God based on our goodness or our badness. So some of us could look at this passage and say, oh, there's no way God would ever choose me to do something like that. There's no way. You don't, you don't know my background, Keith. You don't, you don't know what I've been like. All right, well, this is a mind-blowing concept right here, isn't it? What can you tell me about Jeremiah's background? Nothing. So then why would God choose Jeremiah? Well, it must be for reasons in God. Because it certainly ain't for reasons in Jeremiah. And that might make some helpful sense to you and I, right? Why would God choose us? Why would God relate to us? Why would God ascribe a purpose for any of our lives? Why would God call any of us? To do something meaningful in our lives. My resume? Well, that's not why God chose here. And then there's going to be sovereign, right? The God of the universe. It's a big fancy word for God being in charge of everything. So God's in charge of Jeremiah's life before Jeremiah has breath. Before he's made the scene. God put him in the womb that he was in. I was at work forming you in the womb. That means... Jeremiah, though he didn't get to choose his parents, and none of us do, God chose Jeremiah's parents. God put him in the particular womb and gave him the particular parents. At a particular time in history, he's going to come into existence. And it's not going to be a pretty time for him to come into existence. And we don't know much about, at all about his family. Was his family a Brady Bunch sort of an experience? His parents yell at him? His dad leave his mom, never came back home. What, what do we know? We, we don't know a lot, but we know Jeremiah is a guy. He's a man. He's living life. 
And all the circumstances that go into Jeremiah ever being who God's going to call him to be. And Jeremiah, quite honestly, has one of the hardest assignments in all the Bible. And whatever was in his background was sovereignly there by God's design. Listen, that's really helpful. That's a helpful insight because... I don't think we need any help from our culture in this, but we certainly get plenty of help from it. Everybody wants to play the victim card at one moment, don't you? Don't you just want to just slam your excuse down as to why you can't do the right thing, why you can't be whatever it is that somebody else thinks you ought to be, why you don't show up in your kids' lives the way you're supposed to, why you're not this to your spouse, why at work you're not this. You know, you don't understand how I was raised, man. You don't understand what went on in my background. You don't understand this. And so there's always something about me that begins to be this doubtful aspect as to why I can't do what I can do. But, you know, when I read Jeremiah, you know what? I realize that God calls people who've got issues in their past that God was in control of. So none of us should be concluding that we can't possibly be who God's called us to be because you don't understand my past. Uh, God understands your past because it looks like he was watching over every day and every moment of it. And you came into existence. You were formed in the womb by God. You were given to the particular parents that you had. And you came into existence at a particular time frame. And you just happened to be alive in uh, 21st century America. God wrote that story into your story. And he still calls you to be and to do something with your life. So he's very aware of that. And here's an interesting assignment. This is, a, this is an interesting thought about God. Look in verse 9 there. God tells Jeremiah, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day. Okay, here's this calling. Here's what God purposes to do through a guy named Jeremiah. Can, can I say it this way so you'll hear this in the, uh, in the strangeness in which it sounds? Jeremiah, this is what I want to do through you. This is what I want to accomplish. This is God's to-do list. At this point in human history, in dealing with people, I've set you, verse 10, this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, to build up, and to plant. Six things God lists out that he intends to do through Jeremiah's messages. Four of them sound destructive to me. Do they sound destructive to you? They just do, don't they? Pluck up, break down, destroy and overthrow. Does that describe the God of the Bible that you know of? I'm just seeing stuff, right? I'm just seeing what's there. This is God revealing to Jeremiah. I have this agenda at this moment for humanity that I've called to be mine, and they have gone wayward. And in their waywardness, I am going to meet them, and this is my agenda, to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow, and then to build up and to plant. So it can be a very confusing thing when your life starts feeling like things are being overthrown, things are being overturned. Things that we had built and we really wanted. Well, these guys had built something. They really wanted something too. And God is about to jump into their reality. They've invested in things. They've believed things. They've got a lifestyle going on. And God's going to show up and begin to uproot it and take it apart. See, because the God of the universe who steps in and says, hey, you are off course, is installing something that you can't miss here. 
The God who created every breathing person has a purpose for every breathing person. And if you get off course from that, it matters to God. The God who is sweet and loving and kind and merciful, that God, yes, that God. And that God will show up in your life and he'll pluck stuff up. And he'll overthrow things. And he'll tear things down. Now the great thing about reading all the prophets, and if you read far enough into Jeremiah, you get to read about the building and planning part too. But the first agenda of Jeremiah's life is going to be, hey dude, you need to like call a giant time out here because I need to uproot a bunch of bad stuff in these people's lives. Oh, but there's coming a day when I'm going to build and plant. It's going to be awesome. But this is the God of the Bible reveals these things. So he gives Jeremiah this assignment. Jeremiah, please notice this. Jeremiah is going to step into this calling what? Full of faith, ready to go. I got it, God. Just send me on my way. I'm so glad you finally showed up. Verse 6. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. All right, so we're just seeing stuff right here. Jeremiah, this heroic biblical figure. How many of you guys know that he had a great moment of doubt where he just didn't think he could do this? A God-sized task should always feel too big for any of us to fulfill. So he retreats. He doesn't embrace this. He backs away from it. He is full of fear. He is full of doubt. He's a young man in a time needing reform. He's a young voice that's not going to be respected. Not old enough to speak to us. You don't show up at the town gate, young man, and sit amongst the leaders and the elite of our culture and society and instruct us on how to live? No, little boy, go home. And he knows that's the reception he's going to get. But God turns around and says, hey, you may know that. And that may actually be how they sound. And actually, Jeremiah's going to be worse than that. Because they're not going to like what you have to say. And they're not going to tell you to go home. They're going to throw you in the bottom of a cell. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to threaten your life. It's going to be much worse than you think it's going to be. But God says, that does not release you for one second from what I've called you to do. At the end of the day, Jeremiah is going to do what God called him to do. And this is a common problem in the Bible. God picks people who their initial response is, uh, wait, wait, God, you're talking to me? I don't don't think I can do that. Remember Moses encountering God? Burning bush, and God calls him to go confront Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world. And Moses begins to pull up his resume and say, "Uh, God, do you... Moses, right? That's who you wanted to talk to? Do you know who I am? Let me tell you who I'm not. And you can make sure you got the right guy. Right? Remember this? Exodus chapter 4 verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. This is a speaking gig. I'm not any good at this. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Isn't it interesting that 
that God is the one who makes these things, God steps forth and informs you. Because all of us come with our limitations. God, I can't do this because of this and this and this and this and this. And God turns around and says, well, did you know that I'm the one who makes this and this and this and this and this? But God, I'm Moses. I can't really speak that well. Well, you know, I'm the one who makes mute and deaf and seeing and blind. I make people the way they are, Moses. You don't have to inform me of what you can and can't do. I get that. But I'm still calling you. Well, God, with my abilities, this can't work. You're right. With your abilities, it can't. But what if I go with you? And what if I bring to pass the things that I'm calling you to do? You you just do what I tell you to do. And that's the same thing he says to Jeremiah. And it's the same thing he says to Moses. Right? So there's a, there's a calling dimension here. There's something about his life for us to see. All right, so if I'm just reading Jeremiah, I just interacted with a man's calling by God. Now when he begins to exercise his ministry in chapter 2, this is what his messages sound like. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember... The devotion of your youth. Now, now, now God is now speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to his people. He's saying this is what he remembers about them. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Right, here's God saying, listen, my people, I got, I got a message for you. The very first thing God says to them, I remember how you used to relate to me. I remember when I first rescued you out of Egypt. Your heart toward me was like through these words. They, it was devoted. It was like the love of a bride. You followed me no matter where I led you into. And I led you into a wilderness where nothing was growing. There was no favor there. It was nothing but a land where you'll have to trust me. You couldn't see a personal benefit and reward for as far as the eye could see. And yet you followed me. That's the kind of love and trust and devotion you had with me in the beginning. But then some time passed. And you didn't keep feeling that way. This is the God of the universe about to make a case for the thought that I guess I got old with you. And you looked somewhere else. You decided you needed somebody else to follow and be devoted to. I stopped doing tricks the way you wanted me to do them. I don't know. And God indicts them here. This is actually called a, a, a bit of a lawsuit oracle. It's where God calls his people back to the agreement he had made with them. Verse 4, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits? in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled the land 
and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, right? A false god. And went after things that do not profit. Right? Here is this moment where God says, you guys are so off course. I brought you into a land that was good, that was to be enjoyed, that was to be a thrill every moment. And we were to walk together in that. We were to be in relationship together. What did, what did your fathers find in me that wasn't good enough? That they had to go after others, that they drifted off into other places. And the drift got so bad that the whole reason why you're here is because of me. Right? You were in Egypt enslaved and I showed up and said I have got the ultimate vacation destination for you and you and I are going to be there together and I'm going to dwell amongst you in this tabernacle and and we're going to hang out together in the promised land and you get to the promised land and I'm nowhere to be found in your lives and no one even said "Where's, where's the Lord not even the leaders not even the people who should have known better were even a bit curious that their lives had totally forgotten God. This is the indictment that he brings. And God says, this is shocking. Can't believe it. Verse 9, therefore I will contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast to Cyprus and see. Or go to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they're not even gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Is that pretty strong language to you? Are you reading something with me that sounds like it's full of emotion? The God of the universe is expressing something that sounds like it's reached deep down into whatever heart of God there is. And it has ripped at something that he is now pouring that out on his people. He is shocked. He can't believe this. This is, this is insightful. Does your God ever sound that way? Ever? I mean, it's a sad day that we live in that, you know, we live in the day that the, whatever God is out there, whoever it is that we believe him to be, he just exists to pump wind into our sails. That's why he exists. He exists to make my life smooth. He exists to make me happy. He exists to make sure that I'm enjoying the things in my life. And I think he's got like a complaint department. So when that's not working out, I just call the complaint department and let them know uh, there's no hot water. Um, uh, can you work on the air conditioning? It's a little bit uncomfortable in my room. And that's the relationship we've developed with God. But that's not the relationship the God of the universe seeks. The relationship he seeks is more like a marriage. It is a covenant between two. It joins lives together in such a way that you would never have a greater allegiance, a greater loyalty, or a greater affection for anyone else than you would have for that one that you are married to. God married these people at Mount Sinai. He had married them long before that in Abraham. 
God looks at our relationship with him like a marriage. And so when you begin to lose interest and go elsewhere, he begins to call that unfaithfulness. And he's not very casual about that. Dale Ralph Davis, message on this particular passage, he says, it's, it's because there was something in Israel called the covenant. That covenant was exclusive, like a marriage covenant with Yahweh as the husband in Israel as his bride. It was to be an exclusive relationship. See, there's something about our relationship with God that is exclusive. It's not shared like anything else in our life. It operates in a way in us that's like nothing else. Nothing can supersede it. Nothing can become more important. We don't look to anything in our lives as a greater resource. It's an exclusive relationship. Anytime, of course, that there is a breach in an exclusive relationship, it ought to drive the one who is wronged into a fury. There's a proper kind of jealousy in love. And if it is not there, there is something wrong with the love. If the wife or the husband is being unfaithful, the other does not say, well, you win some, you lose some. No, it should make you angry. And it does. It should infuriate you. It should stir up the proper jealousy of love. That is what you have in the fury of Yahweh. When he says, they have forsaken me. They have burned incense to other gods. They have bowed down to the works of their hands. There ought to be fire in love. And there is with Yahweh. Listen, when the prophets show up and they sound like they've got an attitude, they are speaking on behalf of someone beside themselves. And the great indictment that God brings is summed up in verse 13. As a matter of fact, this would be a good umbrella for you to put every prophet underneath this one verse. You want to understand what the prophets are trying to speak into? This one verse. God says, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All right, oh, that's a, this is a good moment, right? This is where you need your study Bible. Because you're an American. When you get water, you walk over to a faucet and turn the thing on. You've never used a cistern in your life. So you may not have any idea, what the heck is a cistern? Well, back then, you might discover on the land or the desert area that you lived in that there was a spring of water that you could tap into well below the ground. They would dig wells and they would tap into these springs. And that water would supply you. But if you were in a place where you couldn't find that, you would dig a cistern. It was like a reservoir. It was a tank. And you'd cut it into the ground. You'd cut it into rock. You'd you'd shape something that could hold water in it. And you would fill it up. And you would use it as a resource. But now notice something here. There's a big difference between a cistern and a living spring, right? Cisterns are built by man. Cisterns are filled by man. And cisterns have cracks in them and leak. And so God is basically saying, you know, you've got this choice here to exist in life. You've got me, this fountain of living water that never runs out, that supplies to you every aspect of your soul is thirsting. I always am faithfully supplying it. Or you can turn your back on me and go build your own tanks 
and fill them up with stuff that you think will satisfy you and live off of that. And you can scoop your water out of that. But the only problem is, uh, one, you've abandoned me. And two, those cisterns, they're cracked and broken. And you're gonna, at one point, you're going to scoop down into that thing and it's going to be bone dry with nothing to satisfy your soul. That's the day that awaits you. And that's what God says to them. And that's what the prophets say when they interact with us. This is why God wrote this down. And so we just learned about Jeremiah. All right, so here's what we didn't do. We didn't, we didn't come here today to check off our knowledge file about Jeremiah, to be able to say, what an idiot, huh? Phew, can you imagine people like that, living like that? I would never do anything like that. Man, those people back then, boy, they had issues. And we kind of just checked that off. Because we know, we know a Bible story now. Right? We know some Bible illustration about cisterns. But God wrote this down because he was speaking something to a set of people who were in a particular moment in their lives and needed to hear something that sounded a particular way. It had ingredients in it. They needed to taste it. If it was a moment to be confronted with the bitterness of where they were, it needed to taste bitter. Right? This wasn't a candy moment. There were candy moments. They entered the promised land. They were walking with God faithfully. Those are candy moments. Everything's sweet. This is not a candy moment. And every moment in your life and in my life is not a candy moment. Don't do this to God. Don't decide, I only want to hear from God when he's bringing candy. I want it to sound like, way to go, Keith. Everything about you is awesome. Take the next step. You want to do that? I want you to do that too. No, you're not doing anything wrong. You're just great. Everybody thinks you're great. I think you're great. This is, I mean, I want to find Bible passages that feel like that. But there are moments where the God who loves his purpose in our lives looks at a life that's drifted and headed this way. And he installs a prophet. And that prophet comes from the room and shows up in our lives and says, Hey, do you, you have any idea where you are? And remember, these, these guys were living life aggressively. Pursuing something that they thought had some worth to them. But God turned around and says, do you understand that the stuff in your life is worthless? You've exchanged God's glory for nothingness. Okay, I need the prophet to show up in my life. I I need Jeremiah's words in moments of my own life. I need to read the Bible in such a way that this now turns back and reads me. All right, so all right, this is where I want, I want to unbolt you a little bit from listening to me. I want you to listen, start listening a little bit more carefully from the inside right now. Start listening. What, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? All right, you understand, in a room this size with as many different people that are here, God could be saying, look at what you've just learned from Jeremiah. And God could turn around and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You understand, everybody in Jeremiah's day was not in the same place. There were some people to be commended. There were some people who were following God full of faith. But most of the people were characterized by what's written right here. So you've got to hear the Holy Spirit say something to you. You've got to taste this stuff. And you understand, when the Holy Spirit says something to you right now inside of you, he's not going to sound like the guy with the microphone. 
Because, see, right now, if you're letting the Holy Spirit do this, He's taking you on a tour of your own life. I, I can't do that. He's walking you through last week. He's walking you through the last couple of years in your life. Right, so can we just venture? Can we just venture into those categories? Can you let the Holy Spirit right now inside of you venture? This is what it means to savor. Right? If you take your little field guide out and you're going doing your homework this week, there's, there's questions to help you savor this passage, to taste what's there, to pause for a moment, to open your life to the light in this passage and say, okay, God, now read me. But what's the calling dimension like in my life? How many of you guys would, would sense the Holy Spirit interacting with? Are, are you on a mission for God? Are you aware that God calls you specifically in particular ways? And he wants to launch you into that? Have, are you on that mission right now? Is it God's mission? Are, are you keep trying to talk God into being on your mission? I, I promise you, Jeremiah would not have talked God into this deal. Do you see how upside down we live sometimes so upside down? We get a vision for life and then we spend all of our time trying to talk God into it. Rather than standing before God and saying, God, you know, you created me and you had a purpose for me. Am I living that purpose? Do I even know what that purpose is? And I don't think you're trying to figure out whether you're called to be a prophet. You, you may just be called to be a husband or a wife, a mother or a father. God with a particular job, person going to school right now to prepare yourself to be who God's called you to be. A functioning member of the body of Christ who loves God's people and lays his life down to advance the kingdom of God. Those are the kinds of callings that are a whole lot more common than Jeremiah's. And yet God has spoken something to you about that. Do you have any idea where you are right now in that sense of calling? Because Jeremiah's personal biography we're going to learn from if you read the rest of the book. Very difficult, very unrewarding. This is one of the most unrewarded ministries in the whole Bible. This guy starts out launched by God to pluck down and tear up and do all this great stuff. Years later, no one's responding to anything he has to say. What would you be thinking? Uh, I think I missed God's call. Wouldn't you? You know how many marriages go through that season and we meet with folks and it doesn't feel fun anymore to be married. It's not interesting anymore. It's not thrilling anymore to be married. And you know what people conclude? I think I made a mistake. I don't think I was supposed to be married to you. See, it's pretty important to learn something about hearing God tell you, walk that path right there until I say stop. Because at some point you're going to be tired of being a parent, tired of being married, Tired of this career? You're going to just be tired of it. And if you don't know God called you to that, you've got a miserable set of days on your hands. So I might need to learn from Jeremiah. I might need to taste this morning. Is God speaking to me about the calling that's in my life? Or maybe the oracle to the nation is more what God's speaking to you about. Eric, I don't know if you're coming or... You are? Okay. Um, you get close to this verse, and this verse gets around a God who's got passion. And this God's passion is going to get spilled out in two indictments. They're indictments. It's God, the God of the Bible, who shows up in life sometimes and says, You're off course. 
Don't keep doing that. Doing what? And he, and he puts two umbrellas in place for me to take my life and get next to this and say, you have forsaken me as your source of life, the fountain of living water. I don't know, maybe you're here this morning. Don't, don't escape this passage. Maybe you've forsaken God. Maybe he's not the centerpiece of your life. Maybe you don't live for him. He's not that exclusive relationship that's more important to you than everything else about your life. Listen, if God has become second to anything, then we fit the description that's here in Jeremiah chapter 2. This is not just, well, Jeremiah's writing to those people who probably just escaped prison, right? I mean, they're just horrible individuals. No. He's writing to individuals who have deprioritized God. Said, God, you're no longer the thing that I live for, the person I live for, the centerpiece of all that I am. I live for some other things. Probably, you know, you're decent Americans. You live for decent things. I live for decent things. I build my cisterns in acceptable, moral, decent categories. And then I live out of them. And I hope they reward me. Provide for me. Make me feel like my life matters. What are your your cisterns in your life? Is God identifying some of that? That you're looking to something? You've stopped looking to God to provide this living water from Him. And you've looked to something else. And you want that thing right there that you built with your talent, with your degree... Your effort, your relationships, your power on earth, you built that thing, you filled it up, and now you're scooping life out of it. And you've turned your back on God being the centerpiece. And listen, this, this is what it means to savor this passage. If you walked in here today, let's just imagine for a second, typical unfortunate day at church. You walk in, Listen to somebody yell about a passage. Talk about this great calling thing. Talk about forsaking God and building your own cisterns. You pick up a couple of cool little facts. You can finally find Jeremiah pretty quickly in the Bible. Good for you. You walked in here with an industry of cisterns in your life. They're all over the place. You look to them constantly. Most of your moaning, complaining, and whining and crying is because your cistern is dry and you keep trying to take God to task over it. (laughs) The God who said, I never told you to build that stinking cistern in the first place. I had a call for your life that you've ignored. And you keep building something else to replace it and to fulfill you. But instead of hearing that, because we just kind of listened to the word preached, but we didn't draw our life near to it, we walk out of here with all of our cisterns completely intact. We take them with us and we live for them one more week, two more weeks, 15 more years. What if God this morning wanted you to see something in this passage and then he wanted to put your life right next to it so it would begin to show you these things? Now what do you do? Right now, what are you going to do? Well, encountering God means responding to God. Right? Do we put that little video together, Aaron? There's a little video here. These are the kinds of responsive questions that should be going through. So this is just to help you contemplate for a moment. 
how are you going to respond to this? And one of the things you're not going to see on this list is, I'm going to ignore what I feel. That's not on the list. And I hope you won't do that. But unfortunately, it is what we often do. We have an opportunity to encounter God right now. Right? You just saw something in God's word. You just pondered it in your own life. Now you get to stare God in the face. Say, God, what do you want from me? How do you want me to respond? What do you want me to believe? How do you want me to change something in my life? You get to have that conversation with God. Listen, if this is the way you're reading your Bible, God is revolutionizing your life. You are encountering God on a regular basis and what a richness, what a joy. So can we do that together? This isn't your prayer closet. You're not alone with your Bible. You're with a whole bunch of other people. But can you just get personal with God for a moment? And maybe as this little video plays and some thoughts come, the one that reaches out and grabs you, why don't you just pause for a moment? Just you and God, just get quiet with him and respond to him. But whatever you do, don't ignore what's coming up in your heart right now. Lord, help us as we just stare at this for a moment. Engage our hearts. Bring your word near to our lives, Lord, that we might experience you and know you more deeply. God, that's your great delight. It's, it's why we're here. So Lord, help us to see, to savor, to encounter you now.
the most important things I hope we learn this summer is for each of us individually to hear the Holy Spirit speak to you. Grateful for preaching. It's what I do. But there are things that only the Holy Spirit can say to you on the inside. You want to learn to hear that and you want to learn to respond to it. Let me just close with two things. One, maybe you're here today and it seems very foreign to hear God say anything to you. You're just not used to relating to God that way. You've got some concept that there is a God who cares and you've got some kind of ideas about how to pursue that God. But God calls for more than just a mere acknowledgement of his existence. God's looking more for a marriage. God's looking more for you to take your life and to stand with him and to be able to say exclusively, God, my life belongs to you. I say I do to you. It's like a giant moment, like getting married. You come and you stand and all that you are is now going to be given to another person and all that they are is going to be given to you. See, being a Christian is sort of like getting married. Right? If you walked up to me today and you said, hey, Keith, uh, are, are you married? I don't, you know, I wouldn't kind of go, well, I think so. You know, uh, some days I feel like I'm pretty good. Uh, well, you know, I, I tell you the date. I remember the event. I know what I was wearing. I know exactly who my wife is. Being a Christian is like that. It's like the moment that you said, I do. You took all that you are as a human being and you said, God, I do to you in a way that's unique and exclusive. I give myself to you as my God and I trust you and I'll follow you. I'll follow you into the desert. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. That's the image God gives through Jeremiah. And if you've never done that, if you're here today and you've never done that, you've never kind of stood at the altar with God and said, God, I'm saying I do to you. I'm known about you. I knew about my wife. My wife and I dated for six and a half years. I knew a lot about her. But until I stand and looked her in the eye and said, I do, she was not my wife. And you know a lot about God today. But until you stand at the altar with him and say, God, I do to you. How do you do that? Well, you pray. You pray by turning to him in repentance, trusting him, specifically Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ, the one who came and paid the penalty of sin for everybody who would call upon him. Paid the penalty to forgive us of our sins, to open the relationship up to God the Father. So you come through Christ and you say, Lord, you can say this to him. You can say this to him right now. You can look him in the eye and say, God, I am sorry for my sins. And I know I've sinned plenty enough. I ask for your forgiveness. And I give you my life today. And I ask you to give me yours. Come live in me. Come be alive in me. And give me life from this day forward. From this moment on, I'm going to follow you. No matter where you lead me into the desert, I will follow you. For you and you alone are my God. You are my Lord. 
Listen, if you're doing that in your heart right now, God is responding by giving life to you, by coming to live with you and in you and through you from this moment forward. What an incredible moment that is for any and all of us. Remember this day. What's today? July 2nd? Somebody's wedding day. It's today. You prayed that prayer to God. Can we just close our eyes for a moment and just bow our heads in prayer? Lord, I believe there are some here this morning who, God, you've called their life to something. I mean, it's not exactly what Jeremiah was called to, but God, you called their life to something. Lord, there are some here who remember that, and there are some here who have never come to grips with it. Lord, I pray in that category. Well, Jeremiah's got a lot of life ahead of him. Many of us have a lot of life ahead of us. Well, Where are we going with this life? What are we trying to fulfill? What really matters to us? Lord, we don't want to exchange our calling for worthless things. God, I pray for some who this morning you have awakened an awareness. You have come near to them through this verse and you've awakened an awareness that their life lacks direction. God, I pray this morning you would change that. Lord, the days ahead would be days of a haunting question of, Lord, what have you called me to do? Who have you called me to be? God, you would stir that question into their hearts in such a way that they are seeking you and waiting on you and listening for you. Lord, for some who are here who have gotten well down the road, like Jeremiah is about to get well down the road if we keep reading, And the thing you called him to was hard. And there were moments where it was unrewarding. And there were moments when it looked like he wasn't even doing this thing right. There's no way. God, there's some here this morning who feel that way about their life. God, would you engage their hearts as you needed to engage Jeremiah's? Lord, would you remind them that you are with them. And you are giving them what they need. And you will accomplish what you long to accomplish through their lives. And and though there are moments where it looks like there's no fruit, nothing great is going on. God, you are at work. Would you convince our hearts again? You are at work. Sometimes your timing is different than ours. Sometimes the fruit is going to be bore out differently than what we thought. But God, would you sustain us in our calling, Lord? Would you reach into this room, Lord, where our hearts are? And come near to what you've called us to be and where you've called us to be and the timing of what you've called us to be and reinvigorate our hearts. Take Jeremiah's example. God, give us fresh faith to take the next step this week in fulfilling the call that brings you glory through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.